Welcome back to Elder Side, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are covering the story The Sphinx by Edgar Allan Poe. This is uh, from 1846. But before we get into this story, it's our anniversary. Uh, Clay Temple Media has been on the air for two years now. And because I am a hyper nostalgic person, I just want to pause and take stock of that. Think about what we have done. So across the six shows that we do here on the network, which is just a crazy thing to say on its own, uh, we have published 104 episodes in the last year, which works out to exactly two episodes a week. We also launched two new shows, including this one. And the other one, of course, is Hanging Out with the Dream King, our Neil Gaiman podcast, which literally just debuted a few days ago as we are recording this. So I kind of padded our numbers there a little bit, but we were over 100 even without it. So this has been a pretty big year for us. And in fact, in a lot of ways, Brandon, I think this was a bigger year than our first. And so I just wanted to say, one, cheers to us. And two, that I'm looking forward to what we have in store for next year, for our third year on the air. Me too. Hopefully we'll be able to put some new shows on the air, do some uh, cool you know, seasons or mini series of, of stuff we're interested in. I know I'm looking forward to kind of hopefully do something like that. I can't believe it's been two years. It doesn't feel like it. This has been so much fun and so awesome. And I'm so glad we started this project. And I really also can't wait to see where we're going next. Yeah, it's crazy too. I mean, we're, we're already getting ready to record episode 100 of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. And we're having to start to think about what we should be doing to celebrate that uh, milestone as well, which is going to be uh, uh, just a lot of fun. And yeah, it's this project has been so amazing. And, you know, a big part of what has made it so amazing is interacting with listeners, building a, a community of people who want to read speculative fiction books with us and watch Star Trek with us. Uh, it's been just absolutely amazing. And I just want to thank our listeners and those who participate on the forum and really participate in what we're trying to build here. It really has been a true pleasure. So thanks to everybody who's been listening to us and supporting us, uh, either through listening, reviewing, commenting, or helping us out on Patreon as well. Yeah, thank you so much, all of you. But all right, let's uh, let's get to the, the Sphinx. This is an extremely short story. It's probably the shortest that we've done on any of the shows that we do. And so the recap maybe won't take very long, but I do think that we'll have some interesting things to talk about in the discussion. So let's just get right into it. And it is your turn to do the recap here, Brandon. So take it away. Yeah, this is a really short story. So we'll just start at the beginning, like we always do. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the end quicker, probably than we than we usually do as well. So this story opens with a cholera outbreak in New York. And our narrator, who is unnamed, accepts an invitation by a relative to stay at his relative's cottage on the banks of the Hudson. Even though the narrator's relative has all the sorts of things one would hope for in a summer vacation in the Hudson Valley. Uh, the arrival of the news every day fills both the narrator and his relative with a real sense of dread. When the newspaper is delivered, it includes lists of those who have recently died uh, from cholera. And the narrator finds that these lists are often populated with his acquaintances. The regularity with which the narrator receives this news has a really deep and traumatizing effect on him, but his relative isn't so badly affected. Poe writes that the relative's richly philosophical intellect was not at any time affected by unrealities. To the substances of terror, he was sufficiently alive, but of its shadows, he had no apprehension, 
I love this line, this kind of sentence and sentiment. And it really just demonstrates that this relative is able to continue to function, even though the world is in pretty bad shape around him. Uh, maybe just by being able to focus on the material reality of his situation, or maybe even by applying some sort of uh, stoic mindset to what's going on. Yeah, there are a lot of really great gothic horror phrases here in in this opening. And I, I really do love this depiction of the, the narrator's host as being less affected by this news because he has a, a richly philosophical intellect. Because this is exactly what we just had Lovecraft doing in The the Beast in the Cave, though I will say that this, the way that Poe writes it, feels much less like Vulcan religion than what Lovecraft was trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. So the narrator decides that it's better to retreat to his relative's library rather than being pulled out of his gloomy attitude by playing outside or by speaking with his relative. And this, his relative or his friend, nobody's named in this story, is really just trying to break the spell that the death reports have cast over the narrator. In the library, the narrator finds books that quote, forced into germination, whatever seeds of hereditary superstition lay latent in his bosom. Particularly, the narrator is interested in exploring his belief in omens, and he does so at length in conversation with his relative, who finds that beliefs in omens are just groundless. All of this so far has been a kind of philosophical preamble, very much like we had in the the Murders in the Rue Morgue as well. But I really love this opening setup, and I, I really love this type of thick and psychological description. I mean, this is really what made me fall in love with Poe when I was a teenager, and this gothic quality to the way that Poe moves from what amounts to an awesome summer vacation in the Hudson Valley to the news that his friends are dying of cholera just 50 miles away. And then even from that to the toll that the news is taking on the narrator, and he, which he does in the span of a, a single paragraph is just gorgeous and moody. And it just sucks me right in. But I, I also love the emphasis that Poe places on books and learning here. It's it's books that are exacerbating the narrator's anxieties and the narrator's fears, because he's been reading all these books about omens, right? And so the setup here before we get to the incident, the setup is basically the 19th century version of looking up your symptoms on the internet, right, which you should never do. We all know we should never do that. Right. But his relative has all of these strange books. And it's odd to think about the library of this uh, cottage in the Hudson Valley. I mean, this is a place I want to visit. I, I think this is one of Poe's best written stories, even though it's maybe incidental and, and pretty short. He just sets the mood and the setting so well, as you pointed out. And I want to be in this cottage that's full of uh, a, a deeply philosophical thinker, but has books on superstition and omens and the occult. It just sounds like such a cool place to be. You can go outside and play tennis and hunt rabbits and go fishing during the day and then come home and read uh, ghost stories by candlelight. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think it's kind of a metaphor for uh, Clay Temple Media for what we're, we're doing here, uh, <laughs> though uh, I'm afraid that I'm probably the crazy one who believes in omens. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> well, who, who can know? You catch me on the wrong day. I might, <laughs> I might believe in him too. So as we said, the, the narrator's beliefs are exacerbated by his reading, but he also thinks he has a kind of material reason to defend his beliefs. An incident took place uh, during his early stay at, at the cottage 
that he was for a long while, he says, unable to explain as anything other than a, a portent or an omen. And he doesn't even want to talk to his relative about this incident. And the incident is this. At the end of a hot summer day, before the sun was setting, or maybe as it was setting, the narrator was reading and looking out of a window that offered the view of the riverbanks and a distant hill. The face of the hill was denuded, thanks to a landslide. And as the narrator is looking out the window at the hill, he's also thinking about the plague in New York City, he sees a monster appear at the summit of the hill, and then scramble down into the dense forest below. You know, and at this point in the story, the narrator and Poe spills some real ink describing the creature. This is really, you know, two-thirds of the story is the description. The creature is massive. It's larger than any current naval warship uh, or any warship that's ever been built, maybe. The animal is even shaped a little bit like the hull of uh, 74, which is a ship of the line, which is this naval warship that holds 74 guns. Its mouth is at the end of a proboscis, 60 or 70 feet in length, and it's as thick as the body of an elephant. Black and shaggy hair coat the root of this trunk-like extremity that houses the mouth of the creature. And protruding out of that, you know, black bristly hair uh, were objects like the tusks of a wild boar. On either side of the trunk or the proboscis are two crystal staffs, 30 or 40 feet in length, that reflect as if they are a perfect prism, the rays of the declining sun. This is just a really beautiful description. Yeah, this description of this monster is really quite fantastical, which is something that I had completely forgotten and something that really struck me on this reading. I I think in my memory of this story, I I mean, because, you know, I already know how this is going to end. In in my memory of this story, the the monster was a wholly natural creature, just a a previously unseen type of creature. But the way that Poe describes this monster is as if it's been cobbled together from bits of other animals. And it's also got body parts made of pure crystal, and it has a skull pattern on its chest, right? So this is really something that is straight out of a, a, a fantasy novel, which is not how I remembered this story. But the description is really quite beautiful while also being quite terrifying, even if this creature seems wholly uh, unrealistic. Yeah, absolutely. And and just the way that Poe brings in the natural environment, that this creature is both horrible, but also highlights some of the beauty of the natural world. It's fantastic. We should also note that the creature has two pair of massive wings and each wing must be at least 100 yards in length. And the wings are covered in scales, and they are connected by a strong chain. And the narrator says that the oddest thing about this mon- monster, Glenn, as you, as you had just said, was the image of a death's head that covers the surface of the creature's entire breast. The narrator is examining this creature, and he's filled with horror and awe, and with the feeling of forthcoming evil. And as the narrator is examining this creature, the creature opens its giant jaw with a like loud and horrifying sound, and this just causes the narrator to faint. 
Well, as we've said, the narrator couldn't speak to his relative about this incident for several days. He's really traumatized both by this vision, but also by the sense of impending death that it made him feel. And one night, as the men are talking, maybe three or four days later, as the story says, the narrator decides to tell his relative of the incident. And this just elicits laughter in the other man. But the narrator suddenly sees the monster once again as his relative is laughing off this encounter. And the narrator points to the creatures in the hill, but the relative can't see anything. And now the narrator is convinced that this encounter was purely a vision, an omen of death. And as he's sitting there, kind of in horror, he he covers his eyes. And when he opens them again, the creature is gone. The relative, though, is as calm as ever, and he interrogates the narrator, and then he launches into kind of a strange discussion of philosophy. And, and I expect that this, you know, short exchange will will take up a, a good part of our discussion. The relative insisted upon the idea that the principal source of error in all human investigations lay lay in the liability of the understanding to underrate or to overvalue the importance of an object through mere misadmeasurement of its propinquity. The relative then makes this statement. To estimate properly, for example, the influence to be exercised on mankind at large by the thorough diffusion of democracy, the distance of the epoch at which such diffusion may possibly be accomplished should not fail to form an item in the estimate. Yet can you tell me one writer on the subject of government who has ever thought this particular branch of the subject worthy of discussion at all? This is some kind of weird, heavy stuff, oddly stated. So we'll be diving into it. Yeah, this is a real weird bit of this of this story. Like the story about a monster all of a sudden has some kind of critique of spreading democracy around the globe in the middle of it. Right. Very strange. Uh, but but at this point, at the relative saying this, he gets up and he gets a book of natural history and reads a passage of a schoolboy's account of the genus Sphinx, of the family Crepuscularia, of the order Lepidoptera, of the class of Insecta. And the boy's account is of this death's head Sphinx. And, and the description matches very closely with what the narrator has seen. And I, and I just want to point out here that this is the second post story that we've covered. And this story also includes the solution to the mystery being found in a book about natural history. So I just wonder what's going on with Poe. Yeah, this guy here he's visiting is like Dupin's cousin or something like that. Right, right, right. Uh, but so... At this point, the relative goes over to the window and demonstrates that the creature that was thought to be so large and so far away is, in fact, hanging on the window sash, caught in a kind of a spider's thread. And it's only about a sixteenth of an inch large, but it is also only about a sixteenth of an inch away from the narrator's eye where he had this encounter. And so this is really just a kind of an odd perspective problem, like a macroscopia sort of issue that the narrator, uh, so caught up in his own fears, kind of mapped this creature onto the hill and didn't realize it was just uh, a moth. And this is the end of the story. 
Right. The, the the end of this story, the the grand revelation about what this monster is, is that it's a perfectly mundane creature that you see all the time. What was scary about it was something was wrong with your perspective. And I, I think it's meant to be funny. I mean, I do find it amusing, although I, I'm not sure that it's laugh out loud funny for us. It probably was in the 19th century. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's funny. It's certainly amusing and witty. Um, but uh, I also think that this oddly ties into like a number of other ideas that Poe has rattling around in, in his brain. Yeah, I mean, this is a small story, uh, and especially compared to the murders in the room where we talked for nearly three hours and still left a ton on the table. And it is also, I think, regarded as kind of a slight story. It's my job to do the discussion for this story. And so I looked around for uh, critical studies of this story because you know people have been studying, scholars have been studying Poe for a long time and, and found actually really only three journal articles on this story. Uh, we're not actually going to be talking about any of them tonight because I wasn't really all that excited about them. But I was very excited to read this story because of its connection to Gene Wolfe. And we talked about this on the air uh, when we were doing VRT, the final section of his novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, because Wolf invokes this same problem of perspective. I will say, though, uh, I have to apologize. I have to confess my own error here on Elder Sign about something I did over on the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast when uh, we were talking about this. I said that story was the gold bug and not the Sphinx. I kind of knew that was not right when it was coming out of my mouth. I did eventually remember that this was the story I was thinking of. So I'll correct myself here. And of course, we will actually talk about this issue of perspective. But I actually want to kick off the discussion by talking about the setup, talking about the the gothic horror mood of this piece. And that really begins with cholera. So I think let's talk about cholera for a few minutes before we get into our real discussion. So cholera is one of these diseases that I think most people have heard of because it appears in 19th century literature like this. But it's a disease that we don't generally have a whole lot of specific knowledge of because it's not as scary anymore. It's not something that most of us are at risk of contracting. But this really was a serious business disease in the 19th century. There were five global pandemics that killed tens of millions of people around the world. And cholera itself is a bacterium. It's a a microorganism that you need a microscope to see. And it is spread largely through infected water. And so we prevent this now. We prevent cholera outbreaks simply by keeping our drinking water separate from our waste disposal water, which was generally the the culprit for these outbreaks. But none of this was known when Poe wrote this story. It wasn't actually until almost 10 years later that uh, a doctor in London named John Snow, sadly not that John Snow, uh, but this doctor figured out that contaminated drinking water was the, the problem. And he, he figured this out during a particularly bad outbreak. In fact, it was so bad that he died doing this work. But even though he had identified what the sort of macro source of the contagion was, it still wasn't until 40 years after this that anyone identified the specific mechanism, by which I mean that anyone actually discovered that it was bacteria that was infecting the the water. And so all of this is really just to say that for Poe and for his immediate audience, cholera was not a disease that science understood. Its causes were unknown. And so it was a scary, invisible uh, almost magical thing that could just strike you down and you didn't really know how to prevent it. Uh, obviously, it's you know here in the premise of this story. So obviously people knew that it was contagious somehow, which is why we have the narrator fleeing New York City here. But the 
ideas of how cholera spread that were current for Poe when he was writing this story are really at the heart of the the narrative here. So when Poe uses this phrase that was one that I really loved when he writes that the very air from the South was redolent with death, he's expressing a real concern that it's the air that might get them. And the action of this story all occurs on a day that the narrator describes as exceedingly warm, which is just kind of a mood piece for us. It's just a, a, a just setting the stage the way that we read this now. But warm weather was considered to be one of the causes of cholera here in the 1840s. So for Poe, for someone reading this story at the time, they would have had this suspicion that what's happening here is that the narrator is perhaps actually contracting cholera, or at least that there's a high risk of that, and that that's the direction this story is going, not the direction it actually takes. And so while we're likely to be reading this story with the understanding that these guys are safe because they've gotten away from the contagion, they themselves would not have thought so. Neither would Poe, neither would his audience. And so I think that we should understand that the the specter of a very real and, and very present death is really looming over this idyllic cottage by the Hudson here that we'd like to go hang out in. And so with all of that in mind, that's really all just a, a preamble. Uh, so with all of that in mind, what I want to do is to think about the Sphinx in the tradition of plague literature and see how Poe is actually playing with some of those tropes. Yeah, I'm really glad you gave us that history there of what cholera was like at the time. And also, uh, the odd fact that you dispensed, which was that, uh, a micro, it was, it was through the knowledge that a microscope provided that people were able to understand what's going on with bacteria. Because I think part of what Poe is doing with perspective here, uh, has to do with a kind of critique of en- enlightenment in some ways that was taking place in the 18th century. So, you know, a century before Poe was writing or so where people were really concerned about how this science could be violating God's natural order. And we see this in, for instance, Alexander Pope's poem, an essay concerning man in the first section, uh, in, in, in the first letter in section six, he says this, Why has not man a microscopic eye? For this plain reason, man is not a fly. Say what the use were finer optics given, to inspect a mite, not comprehend the heaven? Or touch, if if tremblingly alive all o'er, to smart and agonize at every pore? Or quick effluvia darting through the brain, die of a rose in aromatic pain? And so it's just this idea that these new modes of investigating the world that give us a new perspective on uh, the creatures we're interacting with or even understanding bacteria is a a kind of a violation of the order of worship that we're supposed to be engaging in. And at least on some level, that critique is evident in this story that this perspective problem that the narrator suffers on some level is the result of this skewed perspective of making something large that's really small. And maybe the passivity or or cruel calm, calmness, as the narrator describes his relative of having, is really a kind of attitude that is that is not religious at all, not given to superstition, saying there is nothing to violate. This isn't the result of uh, somebody violating God's order. 
the plague, for instance, um, and we'll figure it out and get through it. And um, you're only so upset because people you know are dying. If people you knew weren't dying, this wouldn't even be on your mind. Yeah, there's a lot going on here with what we understand about cholera, about germs, about diseases in general. It, it almost seems that Poe is actually working with that knowledge as well, even though he's not. But it does almost seem like he's thinking about cholera as a disease that is visible if you have a microscope, but otherwise invisible. But he's, he clearly can't be because no one has figured that out yet, which is, I think, one of the sort of real genius marks of this story that he's got his theme so uh, so tightly con- conceived here, right? That, that the object of study here is this issue of perspective. And it works, uh, it works with this moth looking like a monster because you're not you're not sure how far away it actually is because you've you've misestimated how far away it actually is but this is what's happening with the the plague as well right the the narrator is still utterly terrified that they are going to get the 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 plague that they are going to get cholera somehow but his host doesn't seem to have that concern and i like that you point to their different relationships with science here right that uh the narrator himself is someone who believes in bad omens uh, in fact that's what he's thinking about here he thinks that this monster is actually maybe not something that's going to get them he thinks the monster's a bad omen he thinks the monster's an omen that they're going to get cholera i might actually be more concerned about this crazy monster that i'm seeing out my window than cholera but that's not where he's at <laughs> but his host is dispassionate here and this is so often something that we see in plague literature is the way that different types of people are responding to the the stimulus of imminent death or at least the possibility of of imminent death here and i think it's really interesting the way that that poe plays with that trope here by actually having the the narrator in this case be kind of the the crazy panicked person as opposed to the calm dispassionate person who is amusing himself by writing a, a memoir of of what his uh, the other people who are trapped with him are doing which is so often something that we see in these types of stories right and and one of the reasons why i brought up this kind of violation of God's order or God's order in a, in a, you know, the Christianized sort of world that Poe's writing in is that you can't write a plague narrative and evoke the Sphinx without thinking of Oedipus, right? <laughs> who is uh, the king who violates all of the orders without realizing it, brings a plague to his home own city and is is shown the way to lead his city out of this uh, plague through the riddles of the Sphinx who appears, who's this monster that appears to uh, give riddles in order, give riddles, uh, and if they're answered correctly, it'll reveal the real solution. And, the, you know, uh, it's just so evident to me that Poe is just playing with so many different ideas here that go back to the sort of critique of enlightenment, early critique of enlightenment thinkers like Alexander Pope, uh, but also uh, saying like, what what can I do with Oedipus here that nobody's done before? And he does it. It's so cool. Yeah, Sophocles' play Oedipus here is... Uh- really the the classic it's probably the original plague narrative i mean there are plagues that appear in all sorts of older literature including the iliad including uh all over the the old testament or the hebrew bible but Sophie, but in, but if we're thinking of plague literature as a story that centers on focuses around a plague then sophocles's play oedipus is probably the kind of er model at least that has survived to today for that type of literature and obviously you're you're right 
Poe has that on his mind. I mean, he's playing a joke here, right? This is meant to be quite funny to us. And there's also in the in the setup here something that jumped out to me was the way that he's playing with the real trope that uh, that we get in uh, Boccaccio's book, The Decameron, which is uh, about people escaping the Black Death in. Italy, they retreat to a country estate of a, a wealthy person. They get out of the city. They get out of out of Florence in order to escape the Black Death. And it's called the Decameron because uh, there are ten of them, and each of them is going to tell a short story to everyone else in order to pass the time, in order to amuse themselves. Uh, they're there for ten days, so they each tell a story each day. So uh, you know, ten by ten stories, hence the name, the Decameron. If this kind of short story cycle sounds familiar to people who haven't actually read the Decameron, it's because this was the model for Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, uh, you know, which of course is then the the model for Dan Simmons's great SF book Hyperion. But we get this at the beginning of this story: this idea that that's what these dudes are going to get up to—that they're they're hanging out in this idyllic cottage, uh, doing all these awesome things—and then Poe doesn't actually give us them telling stories to each other, which I will say, frankly, is a shame. I wish that Poe had written like a whole story cycle of people escaping cholera and hanging out at this cottage. That would be incredible. And the Sphinx acts as a perfect opener for tone setting, themes, everything. It would be an ideal opener for that kind of story cycle. And maybe we can ask our listeners to uh, let us know what they would do if you know they were going to have these guys telling stories to each other, just based on the nameless character... Nameless characters and characteristics of these relatives. I I would love to. It's a great writing prop to think what would they tell each other? Their different personalities are so clear on the page. They'd each have, I think, a different voice and narrative tack and interests to fill the time. It would be so cool. Yeah, this is an awesome writing prompt. I would love to read stories like this. And and what a challenge for aspiring writers to try to write in the same voice that Poe is using here, or the voice at least of the of these two characters to envision how Poe might write uh, a type of updated Decameron in which it's the 19th century and you're fleeing cholera instead of the 14th century and you're fleeing the Black Death. And this is actually a great opportunity to uh, tell listeners something that I just actually did today, which is to expand the section on our forum that's labeled Clay Temple Fiction, which is usually devoted to talking about our own stories that we've published and so on. Uh, But we're actually going to start saving these writing prompts that we come up with, we're going to post them there and let people fill up the the forum there instead of just kind of emailing them to us, which is what people have done before, which then we get to read and other people don't. So we're going to dedicate that part of the forum to, to that as well. So uh, this is the first that we are saying this on the air. So you can be the first person to, to take a crack at that. And that'd be awesome. We're so excited to read your stories and prompts and Please, please take a crack at some of these. I know it's great to it's going to be great for me to have these cataloged as well because I come up with a lot of writing ideas on this uh, t- discussing these stories and I get around to less than a third of them probably. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, same here and this this will be great and I do want to say that this was a suggestion that we got from a listener, a really uh, great listener who's been with us from the beginning, a friend of the network is is what I would say. It was a a great suggestion and I'm happy to be implementing it uh now. So, that's fantastic. Well, I think we've got one more thing that we need to talk about before we close out this episode and let people go write these stories, which is this weird business with democracy, with the spread of democracy. It is, for some reason, on the mind of the narrator's host. And he brings that up as the example for showing the types of mental mistakes that we can make when something is wrong with our perspective. This does not seem 
to me to be the first metaphor, the first example I would go to if, you know, you were having this problem and I needed to show you that it was just a moth and not actually a monster on the the roof of the building across the street. So I have to think that Poe is doing something specific here with bringing the spread of democracy into a story that is also about the spread of contagion. But I don't really know specifically what he's doing. Did you have any thoughts on this, Brandon? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's it's really important to highlight that he is that Poe is perhaps maybe critiquing the spread of democracy, but but also what he's saying is is that it's slow to spread, and and we're still unsure of how it spreads or why, and maybe one of the reasons why people think it's so great is because they're so close to it. It's the system they live in. It's new and it's connected to their way of life in a way that makes democracy seem like it's at the heart of why they live the way they live. And so, yeah, maybe it is a great idea to spread it, but we don't have the data, so to speak. We don't really know uh, how or why it spreads or how these ideas become contagious. And uh, I I wonder if Poe is cautioning, uh, you know, the sort of colonial governments at the time on their using this ideology of democracy as a smokescreen for their activities uh, around the world. So I'm just, I just really want to highlight it and, and really open the question up to the forum as well, that this is a puzzling bit of the story, but it is very strange to have a story about a plague uh, and the which which we've discussed as being rooted in a sort of a, a perspective issue, something too small to see causes it. And democracy may be too large to see, uh, but it is also spreading and wondering whether or not that's good or ill. It's it's a strange thing. So I think, you know, we're kind of at the same place we were when we were discussing Letters in the Room Morgue, whether Poe is for or against some of these racist ideas or uh, the instantiation of the global of of a city police force and all this stuff. He's really caught up in these crucial political and uh, contemporary ideas that he's writing about that would probably feel really familiar to a reader, but just suck us into the past uh, kind of looking at these stories with fresh eyes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the 1840s were a real revolutionary decade, uh, politically speaking, um, not even just thinking about empires around the globe, but thinking about Europe itself. Most of Europe is not democratic here in the 1840s, though by the end of this decade, really just two years after this story is published, there are going to be a number of uprisings, a number of revolutions, some of which are going to be successful uh, in creating democracies or or creating republican governments in some places in Europe, uh, some of which are going to be dismal failures, and most of which will uh, not succeed in establishing an actual democracy, uh, but will succeed in some concessions, some constitutional or legal concessions that will allow more participation from what I guess we might describe as a growing middle class. And And I have not spent a lot of time by which I mean any time reading editorials about political crisis brewing in Europe you know, from the 1840s. But I imagine that this was very much in the the news, that these were the, the much debated topics of the time. And probably this and cholera outbreaks were actually the most dominant news stories of the 1840s would be my guess. And so Poe is really linking them here in some way that uh, is uh, just 
not as visceral for us as it would be for contemporaries. And so I'm, I'm hoping we've got someone out in the audience who is actually a historian of the 1840s who can can tie all this up for us. Yeah, and I have to feel it like at this time as well that people in America or people in the cities of America who are reading these uh, magazines where Poe is published are also really aware of their status as recent citizens of, of the United States. I mean, uh, of having relatives still in Europe and family members in Europe and abroad, that these are issues that would hit close to home uh, to, to people living in the U.S. in the 1840s. And that may or may not be true. I also have done not a lot of research on this, but uh, I'm hoping to find out. It's a question I have, and I'd love if one of our listeners could fill us in on this and give us some more information. But on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of our coverage of the Sphinx. And be sure to let us know if you know a lot about what's going on in the 1840s in America, in the cultural milieu, in the social milieu, uh, and people's understanding of their uh, citizenship, particularly in the kind of Northeast where and in the Mid-Atlantic and uh, New England states where Poe is really uh, writing. Um Tell us about what's going on there. I'd love to learn more. Yeah, this is a story that I think has left us with more questions than we have answers, which is fantastic. That's a great way to leave a story. And hey, also, we've got a writing prompt on the, the table, and it will now have a special place on the forum. So well, if you are on the forum, please check that out as well. We'd love to read your stories. Next time, we'll be back with From the Tideless Sea, Part 1 by William Hope Hodgson. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>